Welcome to Headliners, the podcast. This is the paper review that won't put you to sleep. You can catch us live every night from 11 on GB News with a panel of top-notch comedians going through the biggest stories hitting the next day's papers. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Headliners. Welcome to Headliners. I'm Andrew Doyle, and joining me tonight, I have the comedians Leo Kurse and Diane Spencer. How are you both? Leo, you've been in the gym this evening. You've yeah, been working the, out. We've we got a free gym here. We so do. As a Scotsman, I want to get my money's worth. Is that what it's about? It's less about the health, yeah. more about being thrifty. Yeah, well, it's, it's actually a clash of the Scottish things, because I want my money's worth from the free gym, but also I don't want to be healthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a cultural clash there. Diane, have you been making use of our facilities? I had, I mean, I haven't been to the gym yet. I'm more of like yoga, namaste. Yes. Like, I like a comfy room with like some incense. Yeah, you like spiritual health. I really Which matters do. more. Yeah. I mean, you die younger, but it's, you're more Glass fulfilled. Glass of white wine. Absolutely. Sit, meditate. <laughs> well, let's have a look at tomorrow's front pages before we delve inside of them. And we start with the Daily Mail, and the Daily Mail leads with Eurocourt grounds jet to Rwanda. This is the, uh, the first uh, Rwanda asylum flight, which was grounded last night after a, dr a dramatic intervention by the European Court of Human Rights. We're obviously going to be getting onto that in just one moment. Uh, and this is dominating all of the papers. We move on to the Telegraph now. We have Rwanda deportation blocked uh, by European judges and inevitably onto the Guardian. And they have the same there, European ruling throws Rwanda plan into chaos. Onto the Financial Times now. Coinbase to cut almost a fifth of staff as crypto crunch worsens. I have to be honest, my knowledge of a cryptocurrency is as poor as ever, but maybe my panel will be able to enlighten me. And onto the Daily Express. Fury as Rwanda flight blocked. And then again onto the Metro, and they're running with the same. They're going with Rwanda Air Farce. So they've attempted a kind of pun there. So at least they're doing something a bit original there. And then we're moving on to the Daily Star. And of course, as ever, bucking the trend. They're not interested in the Rwanda story. They're interested in ice creams. We've got 99 problems. And one of them, apparently, is that Cadbury's are warning of a chocolate flake shortage. That, that, I'm surprised that's not on all of the front covers. Very important news there. We'll be getting to that in a moment. Those were your front covers. We're going to kick off with Wednesday's Daily Telegraph, uh, giving uh, another update on the week's biggest story, I think. And this is dominating all of the papers. Who's got this? Is it Diane? Oh, it's actually me. Mm. Um, so the European Court of Human Rights has um, essentially grounded the very first Rwanda flight. Yes. Um, so it seems that no flights can leave the UK, whether you want to go to Malaga or Rwanda. Nobody's going anywhere. Um, so they've grounded this, despite the fact that... Uh, the Supreme Court, the High Court and the Court of Appeal have ruled in favour of the government. Yes. The, um, but the thing is, is that we are signatories to the European Court of Human Rights. Yes. And they've gone, nah, you can't take this off. We think it might be illegal, your policy, because Rwanda's not signed up to our thing. Yes. So we're not sure that you can do this. Well, they've cited safety concerns as well, haven't they, about some of the, uh, the refugees going to Rwanda. I, and I'm not quite sure what they mean by that. They're suggesting that the conditions 
might not be ideal. For a moment, I genuinely thought you meant the flight. I genuinely thought you meant <laughs> there's no cabin crew, so how on earth are we going to... The leg room is appalling. It's not, it's not Ryanair, so... No, so <laughs> it's OK. So, Leo, now, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because, obviously, we are signatories uh, to the European Court of Human Rights, well, to the Convention, which the, the court interprets, the law of the Convention. Um, it's not to do with the EU. I think a lot of people get confused with this and the European Court of Justice, which we are no longer subject to, but the European Court of Human Rights, we very much are. But isn't this going to inflame tensions in terms of... Yesterday, our High Court said, yep. no, this is legal. <clears throat> a court in Strasbourg saying no. Yeah, considering Brexit was all about us taking back our sovereignty and our ability to make our own decisions, for the EU to step in after this has been tried and tested in various courts, in our highest courts in the UK, and overrule us and say, oh, no, you can't do that. It's not the EU. This is the point. It's not the EU. I yeah, mean, but it, it, it sounds like the EU. It sounds like the EU. European in the name. It's European in the so, name, we, Andrew. We signed up to the European Court of Human Rights. Before, it predates the EU. It, it, was, it was the Council of Europe in 1950. Predates the Treaty of Rome by seven years. So this is not the EU. This is something different. Mm, yeah, but, well, but, you, but for you, it's not enough. For me, it sounds very European. It's got <laughs> European in the title. And I thought we left, and I thought we went through all that pain and all that hassle to, to have some sovereignty and, and to have some to be able to make our own decisions. And it's uh, you know it's so hypocritical because the EU. I know this isn't the EU, but the EU in 2019 funded uh, sending refugees uh, to Rwanda. So oh, sure, look. it's fine for them to do it. Now, the EU has but not got a great record. But somebody who doesn't smell of garlic, does it? Oh, my God, everybody's up in, up in arms. I think the EU has a terrible track record on migration. And, it, you know, it was paying Libyan warlords yeah. to keep people in camps. You know, it, it, it's not... If, you, if you're pro-migration, then another, the EU is not your friend. Which is another great idea that we should look into. For goodness sake, Leo. Well, let's move away from Leo's xenophobia on this and go to you, Diane. So are you... Are you, are you... <laughs> Because he's more worried about the fact that it sounds a bit European to me. Mm. Uh, but you're you're more concerned with the asylum seekers, presumably. Um, well, yes, of course. I mean, like, uh, they've already been through uh, quite a lot. Yeah. Um, and France, I, I, I including think it's, France. <laughs> including and a lot of other France. very safe countries. Yes. Now, you have got to look at it from that perspective. Okay, so... And what does bother me, actually, yeah. is this kind of flurry of legal help. Like, these lawyers have just magically appeared out of nowhere and suddenly come to their rescue. And I, I do get a whiff here of a bit of saviour syndrome from the lawyers yeah. and that they are jumping on somebody who is in the news. But there are a lot of people who are in trouble in the UK through no fault of their own as well who do require legal help and haven't got the funds to put it together. So it's so difficult, isn't it? Because it often feels like we're talking about different issues and we're moving away from the, the plight of the asylum seekers themselves. Yeah. You know, they're caught at the centre of all of this. But we're well, talking about, like, firstly, we're talking a bit about democracy, whether, you know, it, it should be our government that is enacting our laws and not these lawyers and Prince Charles getting involved, the Archbishop of Canterbury. It should be what the government mm. wants. Um, and similarly today, we're now talking about a conflict between uh, our government and a, a court in Strasbourg. Yeah. But shouldn't we remember that we're dealing with human beings here? Yeah, I mean, Definitely. we are dealing with human beings. And it is, you know, it's terrible that, you know, people can't make a life, life for themselves in, in Syria or wherever they're coming from. Uh, but the idea that they're, they're asylum seekers is uh, kind of ridiculous, given that they're coming from, from France, which is a safe country, which, you know, you can, you can claim asylum. Are, and there's many asylum. other countries that they, they can come, come from. There the are asylum is, seekers, though, because, I mean, what, the one, the, one, of the, one of the passengers w w was actually tortured, according but, to the evidence. But we know that the asylum system is being gamed by economic migrants who want to come here to make a better life for themselves, which I can't, I can't blame them uh, for, for wanting to do. And it would be great if we, could, if we could do it, and if we could just open the borders and have everybody come into the country who wants to come into the country. But we can't, because we've, we've got a limited amount 
of space and a limited amount of resources and uh, there'd be the social and cultural conflict yeah. and upheaval that, you know, we'd be storing up problems. We've, we've already seen with the, you know, Western liberal democracy is, is, being, uh, is being sort of curdled and, and turned, turned on itself. We've got uh, mobs deciding what films can be shown in cinemas. We've got terrorism. We've got grooming gangs female genital mutilation, these, these aren't things. But none of this is to do with these people, these particular individuals. It's not to do with these particular individuals, but, I mean, it's not... Like, we wouldn't have these things if we, if we you know, had firmer, firmer borders. And it would be great to let people... Well, I think a lot of people are suggesting that this is a bit of a fudge anyway. The, Rwanda, the whole Rwanda policy suggests a failure on behalf of the French government and the UK government to deal with the problems that we but, have with people trafficking. But Rwanda's a fantastic solution. Rwanda's a fantastic country, much better weather than the UK, much better economic growth prospects than the UK. So if you're a single man, which these... People are these people are single men uh, who you know we're, we're not throwing uh, you know women and children uh, uh, anywhere. Like, they're going to be able to make a fantastic life for themselves in Rwanda. Okay, we have to move on now. Wednesday's Times next. It looks like Nicola is getting one step ahead of herself. Leo, I imagine you're going to have a few things to say about Nicola Sturgeon. I've heard you talk about it before. <laughs> Am I? Is it fair to say you're not her number one fan? I'm not a massive fan of Nicola Sturgeon, <laughs> so she's still. Banging the drum for independence. She wants another independence referendum, even though it's supposed to be a once in a generation uh, generation thing. And like, when was it? 2014? How small was this generation? And yeah, I know. But <laughs> I mean, well, this is why, I mean, health outcomes for Scottish people, the life expectancy is, is dropping so far that yeah. pretty soon seven years will be a generation. Fair enough. So that's probably that, what she means. Yeah. Maybe that's why she's trying to, uh, trying to get us to all die so young. Uh, but, but, yeah, so she wants another uh, independence referendum and, and is banging the drum for that. She says there's, there's a huge case for it. She's had to admit that there's going to be issues around, I mean, because obviously the money, you know, we're not going to be able to use, in Scotland we won't be able to use uh, pounds anymore. We'll have to have Scottish fennigs or, or the euro. So that's going to cause... <laughs> You know, huge problems with trade with with you the could rest. Trade of the UK. like you used to in the Highlander. You could trade with cattle. <laughs> people like William Wallace did. What do you, what do you think? How you fit in your wallet? Well, that's a very good point. Um, this is my knowledge of Scotland, by the way, coming through. Um, Diane, what do you think about this? Are you are you a fan of Nicola Sturgeon? I'm not a fan of what she's trying to do. Do you want to keep all. the union together? I do want to keep the union together. And what I object to is that she seems to sort of throw everything um, across at England and go, "Bro, we don't want to be a part of you." And it's like. Mate, you can't even take the rubbish out in Glasgow. You can't even organise your own, the clean-up of your own cities. Glasgow looked a state in that climate. They do and have it looks even they worse have, now. They have issues with, with high levels of drug use. I know you've talked about that on yep. the programme before. And it's there, like, but... why don't you get your house in order? And also, what I think is amazing is that there would have to be a border between Scotland and England so, because you would have to have border checks. Yeah, I mean, this is I mean, this is something that Nicola Sturgeon has admitted. She's saying there will have to be a hard border, even though on the Andrew Marr show before she was saying, no, we, she was sort of implying that that wouldn't be the case. With all, that, all that's happening with Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Protocol, you would have thought that the implementation of a hard border between yeah. England and Scotland wouldn't just be a disaster you, for everyone. If you're going through Stranraer uh, on, on a truck, which is a, is a trade route from, from England through Scotland, Stranraer to Northern Ireland yes. to, to Ireland, yes, I've done uh, that. you're going to go through several different uh, border checks and yeah. several different currencies on that trip. It's, it's ridiculous. It's unworkable. Scotland does, I think, 66% of its trade with the rest of the UK. Uh, so yeah. this would completely you, destroy the Scottish economy. Which way do you think it would go, Diane? Well, oh, mm, I really... Ha what, if they had a referendum, yeah. like, tomorrow... Yeah. Oof, I'm hoping that actually because of all the Northern Ireland stuff, I'm hoping that enough people would go, we don't want a hard border, yeah. and I'm yeah. hoping that. But I don't always get what I want when votes come no. around. 
OK, so Wednesday's independent now, and it looks like more bad news for crypto fans, Diane. I, I have to be honest, Diane, I'm not, I'm not knowledgeable about this. I hope that you know more than I do about cryptocurrency. I do love cryptocurrency, and this has been happening for a while, and I've got the Coinbase app, and I am not surprised they're having to sack some of their staff. What is Coinbase? So, OK, so Coinbase is one of the many platforms that you can use to uh, trade cryptocurrencies. Right. Now, over the past couple of months, there has been a massive sort of crash, essentially, in, in Bitcoin, which is the major cryptocurrency that everybody knows about. And there's lots of smaller ones, uh, like Ethereum, that's also taken a tumble. <laughs> and even in El Salvador, they've now put out the message, don't panic, because El Salvador has taken Bitcoin as legal tender. Right. Uh, they also have the dollar, but they have Bitcoin as well. And you have to actually trade in Bitcoin. And considering okay. the value is massively plummeting. Now, it's plummeting because... We have worldwide recession, cost of living crunches and things like this. And it all has an impact on cryptocurrency because cryptocurrency is often backed by thin air. Well, that's it. It's not real. <laughs> it's not there. Yeah, but neither is fiat currency. Isn't it? So, no, no. I mean, it's just a bit of paper. We've all, yeah, but it's just a number on a bank screen. At least I can look, pick it out of my wallet and say and wave it in people's faces if I'm feeling flush. Yeah, light, light a cigar <laughs> with it. Yeah. But, I mean, it's essentially, you know, it, it's just people's faith in it that keeps it keeps yeah, it alive. Yeah, it's how many people, yeah. like, invest into it. It is a very unregulated industry. So um, you must be warned, uh, if you are thinking of putting money into a cryptocurrency, it is unregulated. You are literally gambling and yes. just only put in what you you can lose. And it's all over the place. It, it really plummeted recently, didn't it? No, everyone, everyone was really surprised by this. Yes. So Coinbase, which is one of the platforms, uh, they uh, help you buy cryptocurrency. They are having to sack 18% of their staff and they warn of a crypto winter. Oh, I, I just bring, bring back gold and silver and... <laughs> they never went so away. Cattle. cattle, I'm all, all about the cattle. <laughs> makes it more fun. Anyway, Wednesday's Mail now. There seems to be some problems in the NHS. Leo? Yes, there's been an undercover BBC investigation which, which has shone a light. <laughs> why is that funny? <laughs> it's funny to me because it's like, aren't BBC journalists, like, why have they all got second jobs? Like, do they not get paid enough? I think this is part no, of their job. Is... Oh, right. Yeah, what, okay. they, what have they come up with, these, these <laughs> dastardly BBC investigators? So there's a big chain of GP practices which are, which are I guess, kind of kind of privatised. Yeah. Um, not that I want to, you know, cast aspersions on privatisation in the NHS, but uh, Operos Health, which runs 70 NHS surgeries across England, is accused of uh, pursuing various cut-price methods. They, they hire cut-price doctors. These, What's um, a cut-price doctor? So these uh, physician associates, <laughs> associates who are paid, like... Uh, so, you know, in, in, like, legal profession or whatever, you get associates and you get juniors and yeah. stuff like that. So it's, it's effectively... So instead of a doctor who costs 100 grand a year, you get this uh, physician associate who costs 24 grand a year, but doesn't really know anything. This is terrifying. Well, there's, a just... there's a difference in trade. It's like, all right, darling, instead of somebody who's gone to medical school for a decade, I can do somebody who's, who's got a couple of A-levels and two diplomas. So it's the Dell boy of medicine. I mean, we're looking at... So basically, this is someone who can be... Oh, like, I'm quite good at arms, but I can't do anything to do with the stomach. You know, is it, is it that sort of well, ropey? Basically, from, from this, they, uh, they just skim-read stuff and they, they Google. They've they Google. That is, that is what it <laughs> says. So, you know when you phone that, that helpline, uh, the it's NHS helpline? Sorry, it's It's really not bad. funny. Sorry. But is it just someone on the other end of a computer Googling the symptoms? Because I could do that myself. Yeah, yeah. No. Except they're less invested in your health than you are. Yeah, exactly. So they don't get as paranoid and they spend less time doing it, which is... By the way, it is the worst thing you can do is to Google your own symptoms. Oh, because, yeah, never Because the, the internet will take you to the worst possible scenario yeah. all of the time. You're always dying, basically, even. Yeah. Can I tell I mean, you, I'm laughing because I just find it so... 
such an appalling thing that I can only laugh at it yeah. as a reaction. It, I mean, of, it is incredible, I'm isn't it? So utterly shocked. Andrew, this just sounds like they've recreated the NHS in the private sector. But yeah. re well, it is actually an NHS surgery, but it's it been sort of farmed out to this company, and this company are running it so badly. I just just can't like the NHS. So wait, is this, is this when people talk about the privatisation of the NHS by stealth? They're talking about this kind of thing, outsourcing yeah. various contracts to these sorts of companies. I mean, what is the other interesting aspect about this article is it's talking about this thing called social prescribing. And they're saying that this is something that is a radical approach to healthcare. Basically, it's when the doctor doesn't really know what they're doing, so they say, why don't you take a walk? Why don't, why do you, why do you, you know, do some housework in a robust way and work up a sweat? That's basically what yeah. it is, isn't it? Well, to be fair, there are some uh, conditions... OK, let's take, for example, uh, obesity. There are some conditions, like obesity, and the doctor might say to you, right, have you tried exercise? Have you done this, that? And the person will be like, well, no, 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 no. And, and the doctor might say, well, OK, well, you know, I'm going to prescribe for you to go walking and gardening four times well, a Diane, week. Well, Diane, sounds to me like you're fat-shaming, uh, suggesting that being overweight is a medical condition. But there we go. <laughs> the tweets are going to come in now. Um, <laughs> Wednesday's Guardian. And has the government fallen out of love with electric cars? Was it ever in love with electric cars, Diane? Oh, horridly so. Oh. Um, and so the government has pulled the plug on its remaining UK electric car subsidies. Oh. Now, what this means in real terms is that it um, for people on a lower income to be able to afford electric car, that is now getting even further out of your reach, which is obviously right. a major problem because we have uh, the government and, like, um, penalising us. You have congestion charges. Now motorists are really under attack because we're paying so much money for fuel at the moment. It's ridiculous. But they're going to put this money into infrastructure because right. we don't have the infrastructure currently to support the amount of electric cars that the government wants to get on the road. Oh, I misunderstood. I thought they were saying they were cutting subsidies for electric cars. We're not going to get the power points for the electric cars now. No, we're going to get the power points, but it's now going to become way more expensive to actually buy the electric car in the first place. But okay. that's the way it should be, because, I mean, up until now, uh, if you wanted to get an electric car, if you want a Tesla, you're generally not going to be, you know, some guy who works in the sewers or whatever, or, you know, a bus driver. You're going to be pretty posh, right? You're going to be quite rich. Yeah. You're going to be well off. But we've got this taxpayer-funded subsidy on these posh toys for rich ponces. <laughs> and uh, so the cleaners and bus drivers are being taxed to pay for the follies of the rich. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and it's, your it's socialist some, side is coming out now, Leo. It sums up this country. I well, yeah. really like that. Let's see if we can get Leo to have a left-wing rant in the next part. Anyway, coming up <laughs> after the break, insults that could land you in prison, uh, the town that is fighting back against second homes, and is Glastonbury Festival too white? See you in a minute. Welcome back to Headliners with me, Andrew Doyle. Still with me are comedians Leo Kurse and Diane Spencer. Wednesday's mail now, and it looks like climate change is also affecting the way we behave. Leo, how can this be the case? Yes, yeah, so researchers from the University of Cambridge have analysed previous studies and found a link between extreme weather and sexual assaults, physical abuse against women and girls and sexual and gender minorities. That's a strange um, connection, isn't it? Why, why would that be the case? Well, they say uh, these, the, the correlation between these events uh, is driven by factors such as economic shock, 
uh, social instability, enabling environments and stress. I don't really understand the enabling environments unless, you know, maybe chaos or something. Could, uh... What do they mean um, here? Well, like, for example, if there's a, a hurricane and it ploughs through a town and then suddenly uh, your house has been ripped to shreds and uh, the water system's been damaged and there's disease and everything, then um, there could be... That's an enabling environment where now everybody's vulnerable. But People it... haven't got anywhere to live. And so... Oh, and there's less uh, oversight, social oversight and police yeah, oversight. Yeah, right. the police okay. aren't there, they're dealing with uh, other isn't, things. Isn't what they're really talking about here, though, uh, poverty? I mean, effectively, we know that rates of violence, domestic violence, uh, sexual assault, uh, and just general communal tensions goes up when people are poorer. And if you've got these natural disasters that are coming about because of climate change... I mean, I'm a, I look, I'm not an expert. I'm just saying that would seem to be the obvious uh, correlation here. No, I can totally see what you're saying because um, there were some uh, examples in the article where people were saying that they were marrying their children, their daughters off young, uh, even younger than they wanted to, because of flooding. Because when uh, the floods came in, they went, well, uh, now everybody is wrecked because of the flooding, so the they dowry... They float away on the wedding cake. Yeah, so, like, the... the oh, they, yes, your wedding cake floated away with uh, most of the catering and the other things you wanted me to pay for. Um, yeah, so the wedding would cost less, so people would rush to marry their okay. daughters off, and... We. Yeah. <laughs> it's That's mad. pretty bad. I mean, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of tenuous connections. I haven't I haven't looked at the the data behind this, but when researchers look for something, they tend to find it if they want to find it. So you think this might be confirmation bias? You think this might be a kind of possibly yes. I mean, the researchers from the University of Cambridge they're going to be super woke. They're going to be super anti climate change. They're going to be. I mean, the, you know, what? the fact that they're talking about uh, you know gender minorities and things like that. That's that's just. Do you a... uh, does Leo have a point, Diane? Um, he could, but for example, um, after Hurricane Katrina, I think we all heard it where they, they were saying, oh, it's because of the gay people. The gay people have angered God and he has sent Hurricane Katrina to New Orleans. Yeah, not, not many people said that, to be fair. I think no, that wasn't a mainstream But view. that's the kind <laughs> of... That is one of the examples that they're talking about. That's what I mean. I, mean, I think that's, that's why, where you might have a point, though. Insofar, that was an extreme position adopted by various mad evangelical preachers, let's yes. be honest. Yes, um, But this is like a more rigorous scientific study which is trying to draw a connection yeah. between m minorities and and something that affects everyone. Yeah, but when you're, when you're dealing with uh, data, there's, there's looking at, you know, there's so many other factors that could, that could influence this. Yeah. And uh, so there's, so, there's so much uh, there can be bias when you're picking data to look at. Well, uh, I mean, having worked as a, you know, in data analytics myself for the police, sure. you know, when we were analysing projects, we'd never find a project that failed. We'd pick the data to make well, sure I don't, it, it I, succeeded. I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions onto this <laughs> area, but what, this is why I come back to the poverty thing, because so often when people focus on identity politics, they forget about class. Mm. They forget about money, and often that's the thing, well, as far as I'm concerned, that mostly causes uh, a lack of privilege. Anyway, let's move on uh, now to The Guardian. And it's not just the music that lacks diversity at Glastonbury, apparently the people as well. Diane, according to one comedian. Yes, so uh, Lenny Henry, um, I thought he was a sir. Yes, he is. Sir, yeah, sir, sir Lenny Henry, he yes, is absolutely I was, a sir. Well, um, the Guardian needs to fix that. They missed off his first sir. They're racist. <laughs> so, uh, Sir Lenny Henry said he is, quote, always surprised, end quote, by lack of black and Asian faces at Glastonbury. So, that's interesting. I mean, Lenny, sir, I don't want to be rude, but um, I am from the southwest. I'm clearly white, and I've never been to Glastonbury Festival. 
I don't know why you're trying to force people to go to a festival they possibly aren't interested in. <laughs> um, I mean, I have been to other festivals where I have been sort of one of a minority of white people. I think it just depends on which festival you want to go so to. It might come back to what I was saying earlier about poverty and people forget, people prioritising, you know, issues I... of gender, race and sexuality over poverty because... You know, ethnic minority people uh, are disproportionately represented in lower income brackets, and Glastonbury is really expensive. Oh, Glastonbury is yeah. so it's, expensive. It's for posh people. So but what he's is. really complaining about, I think, is there's too many poshos. No, I disagree. I think you're drawing your own... Uh, you've got your own confirmation bias there. Is that right? Glastonbury is systemically racist, and ah. they, they've booked racist acts to perform, such That's as it. Jeremy Corbyn, who was found... <laughs> he was found to be clinically racist. By, he was found uh, to be clinically racist. Yeah, definitively uh, anti-Semitic and clinically racist by a, by a Labour Party. The Labour Party investigated him and kicked him out of the I party for being be clinically. I've never heard of clinically. No, racist. I mean, whatever the phrase is, definitely, oh. definitely racist. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think when we're talking about those sort of allegations, we probably should be clear on our language. <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn is welcome to sue me. Right. Well, what I would say though is, Glaston, I think I. Yeah, I know you were being satirical. But I believe that Glastonbury is for posh people. I, you know, I was never. It's glamping. Before. It's glamping. This is right. where the phrase glamping came because suddenly everybody, they all turn up and they've got their tents, and that's why Glastonbury is such a mess. And it's actually a major pain for the locals. Yeah. Um, because people turn up and they're very rich and they leave all their kit there and just wander off. Oh, it's terrible. But isn't there also the issue here? Like Lenny Henry now is noticing. Uh, and, and so almost sort of counting the number of, of, of faces of different ethnicities. Mm. Haven't we reached a point where we are, we have re-racialised society to such a point that this is the yeah. thing we notice now? And that feels to me like a massive step backwards. It is yeah. a step backwards. And what about, and again, what about proportions? Yeah. Like, because what proportion of the UK is black and Asian? And, you know, if suddenly, like, this is what I mean. Also, like, this festival... Lenny, don't force people to go watch music they don't want to see. Absolutely. I'm... I mean, if you've left the sort of the jungle camp in Calais, the last thing you're going to want to see is it recreated by middle class people at Glastonbury. I don't think he was suggesting that asylum seekers should be going to the to the festival, was he? I don't I believe that's what he was suggesting at all. I think he was just saying, look, I can't see any. I mean, look, he noticed that and he said it, and that's fine. You know, I don't have an objection to that, but it just feels like a weird take. To be yeah, honest. Anyway, just yeah. Like, it reminds me of when John Snow said, you know, talked about he went to that um, that uh, Brexit. Uh, rally in London and said that he'd never seen a place that was more white. Well, try going to Glastonbury. You know? <laughs> anyway, Wednesday's Telegraph, and uh, it looks like you might be facing a lengthy prison sentence in Japan, Leo, because you, you do insult people online. I've seen it. Not in Japan, though. Not, not no, anymore. That's true. <laughs> I mean, you love <laughs> Japanese people. You leave them well alone. Yeah, so uh, Japan, <laughs> Japan has made insults punishable by up to a year in prison under a new cyberbullying law. So this, uh, this was brought in. There, was, uh, there were calls to toughen up laws around uh, online discourse yeah. uh, following a, a reality star who's only 22 years old and he died by suicide two years ago after becoming the target of a torrent of online abuse. There was a, you know, there was a social media uh, pylon, yeah. and he, he ended up uh, killing him, killing himself, herself. Um, herself. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I just assumed it was a man because they're usually men. But um, an online uh, now they've brought through this legislation, and an on online insult is mild as calling someone an idiot, which happens to me a lot on Twitter and and worse things. All it of your trolls the... could go to prison. All no, of my trolls. So in Japan, in Japan. I mean, this is interesting, isn't it? Because you know the the impact of online abuse can be severe. We're not sort of psychologically in a position where we can we we are accustomed to mass pylons. It, it is incredibly damaging. But but you know we do have the block facility precisely for that to keep 
uh, idiots at bay. You know, I've just called them idiots, so am I now... <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So I just think, you know, part of free speech has got to be that people can insult, and part of that freedom is that you can choose not to listen to those people, surely? Yes, I also think that what's quite interesting is that this person, uh, she was a reality show star. Right. Now, reality show stars do actually have a correlation with depression because yes, they're not people who have worked at becoming somebody in an industry. They're somebody who's gone from literally their everyday life and they're suddenly catapulted into the entertainment Absolutely, industry yeah, yeah. and they're not used to what it entails. Like, we all started with just mild Twitter insults, just one or two little Twitter insults, just the odd heckler. Now we've built up, you know, <laughs> yeah. hundreds of insults online. I know. And I don't feel like I've had a, a good day if unless I'm abused Have routinely Have you done anything unless you're abused? No, You've exactly. Done it's a sign nothing. of success. <laughs> Bring it on. Anyway, we're going to move on now to Wednesday's <laughs> Independent. And one town is fighting back against the invasion of second homeowners, Diana. This is Whitby, right? Whitby. Whitby is for life, not just for summer. Uh, so what's happening is, is that there are too many second homes in Whitney, uh, Whitby <laughs> and um, by November it's a ghost town. So um, the residents have held a non-legally binding referendum uh, run by the Whitney... Whit you Whitney. Keep calling it Whit you're obsessed with Whitney uh, Houston. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Whitby Community Network and they have voted overwhelmingly, like 90%, which is amazing, yes. um, have voted to say, no, we need to like make sure that the people who buy a home in Whitby want to stay here, they want to become part of our town because... Obviously, if you just create these sort of seaside towns, when everybody leaves, you do have that ghost town effect. Sure. But you see, the trouble is, I mean, Whitby is a tourist attraction. Whitby is where Count Dracula arrives in the novel, you know, when, when he's shipped over in his, his, his crate to keep out of the sunlight. It's in the novel. <laughs> That's why so people now go to Whitby. And apparently Bram Stoker was inspired by, by Whitby. It's a lovely place. I've been. And yeah. now these second homes are sucking the lifeblood out of it. <laughs> very clever. Very clever. Are you a fan of Whitby? I've been to Whitby. Yeah. It was quite nice. It is quite nice, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I mean, it's the flip side. Tourism brings a lot of investment, a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, maybe some fresh DNA. So you shouldn't, you shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't just throw that out. They need that in Whitby. What are yeah. you implying? There's an incest <laughs> issue. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Outrageous. Right. Let's move on to Wednesday's Mirror uh, with a lovely story about a school assembly now, Leo. Yes. What's about? The UK's first openly gay state school head teacher came out to pupils yesterday by introducing his husband during a special assembly. So Colin Scott, 54, was applauded after encouraging the, the 512 students at his school to be whoever you want to be during the assembly dedicated to Pride Month at Risedale School in North Yorkshire. Not sure how far that is from, from, uh, from Whitby. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's good. That's, a, that's an example of a good, heartwarming story. Yeah, I mean, if they'd have booed him... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a different story, but quite, kind of funny. He's lucky he didn't do it in Hungary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But this is an interesting... For a start, I'm very surprised that this is the first openly gay head of a school. That does actually surprise the me. The Premier League got there first. I, I mean, can't that's believe mad, that. isn't it? Yeah. Um, Diane, is this a good thing? Should uh, teachers be announcing their sexuality on stage or in the classroom? I am split on this. OK. Because on one hand, I do like the way it was done because the head teacher and his husband were joined also by North Yorkshire Police's LGBTQ representative and Lieutenant Colonel Tim... Jim Turner, an openly gay commander at Catterick Garrison. So it was like, well, look, these are also people who work and they are also for LGBT rights. But, but, and this is the line for me. Uh, you don't like him. 
They cause floods. They cause floods in America. But my issue is, like, I don't know about you, but when I went to school, like, the idea of my head teacher, like, my head teacher was a Ms. And that was her business, that yeah. she was a Ms. And, like, at no point did she go, this is why I am a Ms. Like, it yeah. just seems weird. It's just that line of bringing your personal life into the school. I get it. But at the same time, I'm like, why did well, that so, need to happen? I, I mean, don't know. My feeling about that is, you know, I, I think this is quite a, an elaborate way to do it, as in you have the, the, the gay police officer there, you, you do a big statement saying, I'm gay and this means that you should be who you are and I'm going to use this as a basis of a moral lesson for the assembly. Whereas actually, whenever I've seen this kind of thing before, whenever teachers or head teachers, they often mention their sexuality. You know, the, uh, the head would say, uh, at the weekend I was on holiday with my wife and we went to this place and, and bang, yes. there you've done it. So you've mentioned that you're heterosexual without saying that you're heterosexual. Yes. And in a way, I kind of feel it's more powerful from a gay student's perspective if that was the way that teachers talked about it. If, if yeah. in, the, in the natural course of conversation, you, you weren't self-censoring, you mentioned, if, if it came up, you would mention a partner, it's, then yes. why not? That, yeah. that would be more... It's like monitoring the faces at Glastonbury to see yeah. how many white ones and how many black ones. Yeah. It's, yeah, it should just be a, you know, something that doesn't really matter. And when you make it about that issue, you know, you can imagine if you're, as a gay pupil in that audience, you'll be thinking, oh, no, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be blushing, you'll be like, oh, no, everyone, but, no. Yeah, and you, you also, you don't want to be like, oh, because then, like, if you, you'd be like to your gay mate, so you, you want to go hang out with your... Are you going to go hang yeah. out in a staff room now? I mean, <laughs> like, no. The positive thing, the fact that he is openly gay now does suggest that we have moved on, right? Yeah, which Because when is I was great. at school, no one would ever be out. The very idea was pre preposterous, you know, and now loads of people are out. And it's, yeah. it's just not an issue. But because it's not an issue, that's why I feel like you shouldn't have to make a big announcement yeah. about yeah. it. That's my, that's my feeling about it. People will say it's internalised homophobia, but whatever. <laughs> Coming up, will humans be replaced by robots? Can magic mushrooms curb our fear of death? And is London slang going to be the dominant British dialect? I really hope not. See you in two minutes. Welcome back to the final part of Headliners. I'm still Andrew Doyle, and still with me are the comedy legends Leo Kurse and Diane Spencer. Legends, that was a bit much, wasn't it? But, you know, I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to be friendly. Um, Wednesday's <laughs> Guardian, and it looks like this author may have turned her book into a reality. Now, this story we covered before, because the trial was on mm. the other week, and now we have the sentence, this is insane, right? Yeah, it's, it's a little nuts. So, <laughs> um, how to murder your husband writer gets life in prison for, drum roll please, <laughs> husband's murder. <laughs> so she wrote a book about the crime she was eventually oh, to commit. I believe she wrote an essay online. Uh, yes, it was an online essay called right. How... She is a self-published romance novelist, so I'm guessing that the ISBN people have never got involved with the back of her book. OK, I see. Does but that e make sense? Even so, if, you're, if you are the sort of person who would plan to murder your husband, Committing it to... But was that the idea? Was it almost like a trick? Like, in court, you could say, well, I obviously didn't do it because I wrote a book called How to Murder Your Husband. I wouldn't be that stupid. I'm worried... Is that it? Well, I'm worried it was along the same lines as when uh, somebody says they are researching porn for a book. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, well, I was researching and Name it went okay. wrong. <laughs> is, it, is it maybe more like James Bond? You know in James Bond where the, the villain always outlines his plot and yeah. his scheme? Is it like that, Leo? Uh, possibly. I mean, OJ did it retrospectively, if that's the right word. He wrote uh, a book called How... or If I Did It or How I Did It. Uh, but he? after, yeah, like ten, ten years has, after. I, as far as I'm aware, he's never admitted to. But the, the well, the title of the book, the the F, was very, very small, and then like it was like 
Okay, I'll have to I'll have to take your word for that, Leo. Yeah, I, will, no, I will Google it. Genuinely but, not making it up. Also, Jeremy Corbyn was kicked out of the Labour Party for racism. But yeah, this this one. You're not going to let that go, are you? This particular. I mean, she doesn't sound like the sharpest tool in the box. So the, you know, she didn't do much to cover her, her trails. They found internet searches for you know how to kill people and create how to create a gun. <laughs> ah, but she, she was researching a... for her book. Oh, is that maybe but that's that, the cover? That's, yeah. that's, the, that's the trick here. Well, it didn't work because she got caught. But she she bought a handgun at a gun show. So there's something about this, isn't it? The way that some people sort of channel their darkest elements into their literature, into their art. I mean, I do think about, do you know the novelist Anne Perry? Um, she was a New Zealand art, um, novelist who was very successful crime novelist and, and, and a lot of them were adapted for the BBC. Um, but then it was at, she was outed in the 90s as being a murderer. She'd actually killed, uh, bludgeoned her friend's mother to death with a brick back in the what? day. Um, the reason it came out is because Peter Jackson made a film called Heavenly Creatures about oh, that story. Right, yeah. right, and it's a true story. But no one connected that this famous novelist was one of the murderers and then it all blew up. And you just kind of think, it's interesting, because her novels are all about murder and the, about yeah. death and about revenge, and you think, OK. So Art this is, you know, this well, is... Well, artists right. always seem to put their crimes quite, you know, quite at the forefront of their work. I mean, yes, if exactly. you listen to Louis C.K.'s material, you would not be surprised. <laughs> you would not be But surprised. of course artists are going to draw on, the, you know, what, what their inspiration, who they are, and it will come out. But by the same token, we shouldn't look to artists' work to interpret their lives. Yeah. No, definitely like, like, I don't not. think Stephen King is a vampire or, right. or, or, you know, has rabid dogs in the house. Well, this woman is now working on a new book called How to Break Out of Jail. Ah, well, so, well good luck to her. Yeah, that goes. Um, actually, no, she's a murderer. Wednesday's <laughs> Telegraph. <laughs> and after 27 years, it's time to stop exploring since uh, most of the internet has been discovered, Leo, is that right? Yeah, sad news for middle-aged people like me who came of age in the internet <laughs> times. So Microsoft has axed Internet Explorer after, guess how many years? 27 years! Oh, I feel so old now, that's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. It was the new nuts. thing! It was, told, it was the new fast one! Yeah. It was the, uh, then Chrome came along and it's definitely the fast one now, but Microsoft has got Edge, and now which is another like, yeah. new Chrome one. That's but, mad. But yeah, basically, um, there was Netscape in the old days. And I then, remember Netscape, and it had the sort of the symbol with the sort of stars falling Yeah, down. yeah. You see how old we are? We're ancient. Yeah. We're primitive. And then Internet Explorer came along and it was really cool and fast and stuff. Yeah, but now and, it's defunct. And now it's defunct, but yeah, 27 wow. years. Well, you yeah. know what? I can't talk. I've, got, I've still got a Hotmail account, for goodness sake. Yeah, yeah but so uh, can I just say, uh, for those listening, it will end on June 15th. Right. OK? Dad, write this down. June 15th, <laughs> you've got to use the one I showed you with the fox on it. it All right? It, it's very much, right. very much a boomer story, yeah. this one, anyway. So we're going to move on now to Wednesday's Daily Star. This one... Uh, could be the plot of a low-budget sci-fi film, Diane. What's this one about? Well, OK, so this is in the Daily Star. And the Astronomer Royal says humanity will be replaced by AI robots and aliens already are. Now, I was very excited when I read Astronomer Royal. I was like, oh, my God, it makes total sense because the Queen is a Taurus and Prince Charles is a Scorpio. And what will happen when he ascends the throne? We're going to be thrown into chaos. But, uh, no, it's nothing about that. It's something okay. to do with, like, looking at the space so um basically he's saying that when the because we're ever evolving yes. and we're slowly replacing parts of ourselves with you know uh google glass or you know you've got um like you've got the diabetic sort of things that yes. you pay what your blood sugar is um this gentleman um uh lord reese told the cheltenham science festival lenny henry was there by the way counting people yeah um, he told the Cheltenham Science Festival that uh, we will gradually turn ourselves into robotic creations of ourselves, okay. you know, with this online living. And he's saying that because 
aliens are advanced, they've probably already done it to themselves. So, so right, now, so there's two things here, isn't there? So mm. there's the first thing is this idea of, of uh, AI, artificial, artificial intelligence, the idea that robots are becoming sentient. And we had a story the other day on headliners about this, because at Google, there was a researcher who claimed that one of his robots is alive and talks about how lonely it is and how it doesn't want to die yeah. and all of this sort of Andrew stuff. Andrew wants but to then kill is it. I, I was terrified by this. Well, yeah, but, gonna but kill it. Is it just giving us a simulacrum of, yes. of what consciousness is? That's what I hope. But then the other issue about this, this particular story, is about what they call transhumanism, right? Mm. Yes. Which is where we effectively we start implanting our brains with things that enable us to, to, to think at the speed of light and all the rest of it. And I, I just think, don't turn us into cyborgs. Yeah. Don't train the robots to become like us because they will replace us. I keep warning about this. I feel like <laughs> a, a, a New Testament prophet. But we have to be very careful about this, Leo. Am I not right? Well, I think, I think it's going to happen at some point. So you can't, you know, you can't be the Luddite, you know, smashing up the looms. I will be smashing up those looms as much as I like. I, I want a robot exoskeleton. I just don't think we'll ever be able to transfer ourselves into, into you know, into. Yeah, you can't transfer a consciousness. Mm. You can recreate. Not at the moment. You can recreate consciousness, but then what about the consciousness you've left behind? Is oh, it different? You lack the imagination. Person? If you were transhuman, if you had something implanted in your brain, you could envisage the dangers. I can. I know what's going to happen. We're all doomed. Is that what that wire is? Exactly what it is. Right, we're moving on now. Wednesday's Daily Mail, and we all know at least one person who is too loud and shouty, don't we, Leo? Yeah, so an Arabic... Oh, what? Oh, is that a... Oh. <laughs> hey, I didn't oh. say anything, Leo. That's oh. your paranoia. Oh, my God. Assuming that I'm talking about well, you. Well, let's... I hope the viewers uh, back up my, my case for uh, racial discrimination. So an Arabic... <laughs> an Arabic-speaking journalist has sued the BBC for racial discrimination after he was disciplined for being too loud and shouty. So he's had his case thrown out by a tribunal, yep. uh, unfortunately, and he appealed, and that was that was thrown out as well. But looking at the details of the case, it sounds like he had a case. He's, yeah, you know, he, he did. Yeah, he's uh, yeah. he's in his fifties, he's of, of Algerian uh, origin. Uh, he's said to have upset colleagues at the BBC World Service when he spoke violently after being asked to address a July 2019 meeting in formal Arabic rather than Algerian Arabic. So you know, apparently it's more Bedouin and it's more. Uh, guttural, like right, right. Scots compared to, to English. Because people think that you're aggressive just because of your voice, right? But that's that's just your culture. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's the thing. People thought that about my mother when I was, you know, the the, the, the sound. <laughs> no, I'm not being rude, but the, the, the Northern Irish accent can sound a bit uh, aggressive sometimes. Yeah. You know? But also, if you if you are somebody who gesticulates a lot, yeah. So if there's a lot of sort of the way you talk and the yes, way you exactly. do this, like that. Well, I'm gonna lose an eye here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, Leo's already terrified because he's used to me sort of. So we need to basically have some uh, sensitivity to cultural difference. I mean, when, yeah. when, I, when, when I was a teacher, there was a German boy, and all the kids hated him. And the reason they hated him is they thought he was rude, because the way that he spoke English was the way that he speaks German, which means he's very direct. He'd say, he wouldn't say, could you please close the door? He'd say, close the door now immediately, like in this clipped way. And they thought he was being rude, and he wasn't. Right. right? So I think we just have to be aware. Because you know, in England particularly, in Britain, but in England, in England particularly, you know, people are so uh, passive and like they apologize without- All the time, You can yeah. really confuse an English person by saying, I accept your apology. Yeah. You know, you stand on their foot in the tube or something and they're like, they're like oh, sorry. You're yeah. like, oh, I accept your apology. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we just, we just apologise on instinct, don't we, about absolutely yeah, everything. Yeah. As we should. It's a shameful nation. Anyway, <laughs> sticking with the mail, and it looks like magic mushrooms is what we need. Stop thinking about our inevitable and impending doom, Diane. Well, um, so could magic mushrooms in care homes help curb fear of death? Interesting. So Dr David Luke um, has said he is an authority on the science of such drugs. And he said that a giraffe sat on a pyramid told him that these drugs can reduce the fear of death. Right. 
Yes, he was speaking at the Cheltenham Science Festival. Lenny Henry was there counting people. And they've discovered that there's this thing called um, psilocybin, which is found in magic mushrooms. And you see, when you take them, they sort of put your brain on another plane and you start to sort of have this different experience. And so it means that people who are depressed and they feel trapped inside their bodies because perhaps they are ill, perhaps they have cancer or something, um, after they've had this experience, they come away a lot more optimistic because they say, okay. no, there's something else out there. So there's no, there's no great revelation here in a way. Like, if you're, if you're unwell and depressed, that you might divert your attention into drugs or alcohol or whatever it is. But you're saying this has a lingering effect that has a kind of... Uh, in, in, engenders a kind of optimism in life. Oh, yes. Towards the end of life. What do you yeah, think? This, this has... Uh, psilocybin and magic mushrooms have been proven to, to uh, be incredibly good for depression and also things like PTSD. And, uh, you know, uh, recovering from emotional abuse and things like that. But they're illegal, right? They're technically illegal, but doctors in the UK... I know a doctor who's got a, a licence to prescribe it to, uh, in, oh, in what's trials. Oh, number? <laughs> OK, so, so uh, this could actually be, have medicinal... You know, much it's, the same way that cannabis used to be... Uh, is legal for medicinal reasons. Yeah, and I think this is, this is uh, you know, it's going to be huge. A lot of uh, drugs do have pharmaceutical benefits yes. that, are, that are now illegal. Uh, and in the 60s, because people were worried about, you know, them being used recreationally, they, they just made a sort of blanket illegality yes. of them. But now they're starting to look at it and, you know, look at LSD, DMT, yeah. uh, magic mushrooms and Fair other enough. things that are in my glove compartment. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, let's move on to Wednesday's Mirror now. And this is, uh, I mean, this is a horrible story, really, about this operation that went wrong. Diane, you've got the details on this, haven't you? Oh, gosh. Yes, this is deeply sad. So, um, a boy who is four years old was given an accidental uh, vasectomy during routine uh, surgery. So, uh, the family are, of course, suing the hospital. This happened at the Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. Um, and uh, essentially, um, the doctor wrongly identified... He was supposed to um, cut into the boy to deal with a hernia. So it's a hernia operation and they've ended up giving him a vasectomy. Yes. That's, ma that's a major the... malpractice. It's, it's huge, absolutely huge. And they cut the boy's fan's deferens tube uh, and it could affect the boy for, for the rest of his life. But thankfully, um, well, I mean, they're, and... they're, they're, they're suing and they've got an attorney. Yeah. Yeah. It's just horrible, little more to say on that one, really. Yeah. Wednesday's mail. Who, who can say wagwan? Wagwan, apparently phrases like wagwan, and uh, <laughs> that's what it says in the article, will become normal. That's a street slang will become the norm. We'll all be saying words like that, which yeah. is, it feels like cultural appropriation. So me. this is another... I mean, these, these people call themselves uh, experts and researchers, but this is... Uh, um, Ox University of Oxford linguistics lecturer says that within 100 years, the street slang that we hear in London is going to become the dominant dialect in Britain. But in 100 years, that's, that's a huge amount of time. I think this, you know, dialects change on whims. Yes. And, you know, it could... How do they know? How, how can they predict that this particular? Why not? Why not? You know, uh, West Country. Why not? Why not Scots? Why not? You know, why, exactly. how do they know that it's going to be phrases like "waste man"? Well, the thing is, because this is seen as cool by young people, so oh, they, I want, see. they want they to want use to be cool. it. You do get a lot of uh, you know uh, young suburban white kids who use this. You know, words like "waste man." What is a waste man? Yaldim. Oh, it's a stupid person. Is yeah. it? However, I um, I feel that with the internet, it is far more likely that. Um, as people sort of go towards the fluid social groups that they want to be a part of, like, for example, people who love K-pop or people who um, gravitate towards American culture, I've heard uh, English people use American words and American phrases. Ah, so yes. I think it's less likely to be this... It'll be K-pop. 
Yeah, we, we could all be K-pop talking Why not? Fans. Why not? We've got time all, just for one We're all going to be talking Chinese. Story. Oh, here again. <laughs> uh, OK, so this is a story about... Uh, well, this is an odd one. This is about a KFC. <laughs> yes, oh, damn! A drunk dad of six with a samurai sword turned up at a KFC at 1am to buy his kids a meal. If that's not great parenting... I'm so glad this story came out before Father's Day because this just shows Why did he bring the sword? Of... Why did he bring a samurai his, sword? Because his partner had chucked all his stuff out of the house. <laughs> you take your crap with he'd, you! He'd, uh, <laughs> he drunk six pints of Stella as well. Six so pints of Stella, <laughs> a samurai sword. This is a beautiful British story, isn't it? <laughs> this, is, this guy's an inspiration. Heartwarming. Yeah, We've yeah, got to end there, Leo. I don't think we, <laughs> frankly, I don't think we can top it. So that's all we've got time for. Anyway, uh, thank you to my guests, uh, Leo and Diane. Please do join us tomorrow for Headliners at 11 o'clock where we'll go through the next day's papers. See you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to Headliners, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode again. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a nice comment. Speak to you at the same time tomorrow for the paper review that's never boring. 